And welcome back to another edition of On Stage, Off Stage. I'm George Sapio, and today we are lucky to be talking to playwright, actor, and gosh knows else what he does, Daniel Demiano. Um, so sit back, folks, because it's going to take me a second here to actually read through the short list of his credits. His play, Dreams of Friendly Aliens, was a recipient of the 2004 Christopher Brian Wolk Award. Another play, Offspring of Lorraine, received the 1998 Off-Off-Broadway Review Critics' Choice for Excellence. Bon Voyage, Mr. Phelps, was awarded Grand Prize from the Attic Theatre Ensemble in Los Angeles. And The Enlightenment of Mrs. Cartwell received the 2009 Silver Stage Award in West Virginia. If that's not enough... He's been a two-time finalist for the Playwrights First Award, sponsored by the National Arts Club in New York City, a finalist for the YES Festival of New Plays Award, sponsored by the University of Northern Kentucky, and a recent finalist for both the 2012 Fulton Theater Discovery Project Award and the 2012 Arts and Letters Prize for Drama. I'm not done yet. Hang on. His play, Day of the Dog will have its world premiere at the St. Louis Actors Studio in March 2013, and that will be followed by the world premiere of his play, The Golden Year, with the workshop theater company Mainstage in June in New York City. That's not enough. Dan is also a published poet, published in Hot Metal Press, Cloud Bank, and most recently the Newtown Literary Journal, and he is a current nominee for the 2013 Pushcart Prize for Poetry, which we will get to later in the interview. Do I still have time to actually interview him? Yes, I do. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, George. Thank you for making me sound so significant. Um, let's get started with Day of the Dog. Give us a little background on the play. I mean, how did it... Uh... Yeah, it's its world premiere. I actually... It start, it, its first reading was at the Last Frontier Theater Conference in 2008. When did you actually write it? When did I write it? When did you start writing it? Uh, I think I started it in 07 into early 08, and then it was shortly before the deadline for the 08 conference, and then that was its first, uh, it was its first reading there, and it was read in the lab. Dawson, uh, who's the coordinator of Last Frontier Theater Conference, good guy, and he was very enthused about the play and offered to bring it back next year as a concert reading in the evening so everybody in the conference could see it, because usually there's labs during the day and we're all in different things, so there's only a certain amount of audience that can see certain plays in the lab. So it was a great opportunity to see it for the whole conference to see Day of the Dog. And then... um, You had a remarkable cast for that one. You had... uh... Laura Gardner. Laura Gardner. Frank, Frank Collison, Collison. And Mr. Glenn Morshauer. Right, who I've been seeing popping up in just about every fourth film that seems to be going out these oh, days. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's in... Uh, yeah. He, he's worked with everybody. He's worked yeah. with, um, you know, George Clooney and uh, Jeff Bridges, and he yeah, he works a lot, and he's a, he's a nice guy. And then um, it had... I, you know, was submitting it around, and I, I had some interest, and there were people that wanted to do it that I, I didn't feel right about. I had a theater company that even... Um, advertised doing it and didn't contact me oh that's a tricky one how'd you settle that up oh i i i was doing a you know what it was i was doing a random google search um which i have to do from time to time because sometimes you get surprises right and i think all playwrights really should do this because you know it, it is astonishing that theater companies will take a play they are out there and um you know you you know we write these things for no money and yet they'll some of them think they can just kind of do it and not tell you. And this is a full length, too. It's not even a one act. So uh, I did this random Google search. This theater in uh, Arizona, I won't say their name now because I already raked them over the coals and I did contact the Dramatist Guild about them. And it, it was 
all done, null and void. Um, but the long and the short is they had the script that was actually given to them by someone else who I met and didn't know very well. And they were advertising. They had a logo for it, an awful logo, an awful synopsis. And um, I found this out three or four months before they said they were going to be doing it. And, um, you know, it never happened. But uh, Where do these people get the cojones to do this? I mean, it's not like playwrights are making millions off of royalties. Oh, please. I mean, to pay you or me royalties would be minimal. Oh, please. This Especially for a small, you know, regional theater. Well, the artistic director's argument in his, uh, in his wonderful... Uh, wonderfully astute email to me was, uh, your cover page uh, was not on the play, and so I had no way to contact you. That, that was his excuse. So let's just go ahead and do this guy's play without his permission, right. without any kind of contact whatsoever. Well, first of all, my, my cover pages are always on my plays. Uh, it was just really a convenient, deceptive answer that I did not buy. And uh, long on the short, you know, it was taken care of. But, you know, when St. Louis Actors Studio did, you know, elect to do it, they did ask me about it because they came across an old posting. And they're like, has this been done before? I said, no, it hasn't been done. It was just a deceptive theater company um, that had created a logo and just never contacted me. And it, it does exist. I've had friends that have had one acts done and they've just found this out afterwards. And, and I mean, it's, it's shameless. Day of the Dog is, uh, it starts as a dog problem. That's how it's presented to the audience. It's a couple who calls in a canine relations specialist right. and uh, to explore what is wrong with their dog. Their dog is named Carrot. Right. And gradually, I guess, turns into a, a, an examination or a dissection of the owners themselves. Right. Um, what, what, what sparked this for you? I, I remember vividly, I was actually... My wife had on uh, this guy named Caesar Milan. I think it's still on maybe Animal Planet. I don't have the channel anymore, but um, he is a dog whisperer. He is a basically a canine specialist. And we were watching an episode where he was with this woman who um, had this relationship to this dog. It was actually a small dog, like a poodle. But it was such a um, bizarre, obsessive relationship that it was it really. Um, it affected her relationship with her husband and her family. Uh, I mean, she had spray painted this dog pink to, because she liked pink. She would dress it up uh, and the dog would bite everybody but her. And it was creating a very deficient situation uh, in this house. And I just was watching it. It was one of those things like, you know, there's something here. And so the idea of Day of the Dog was... Uh, it's this couple who has a daughter. They live in uh, South Florida, and they have an out-of-control German Shepherd. And they've tried several different people that have not worked out. And then in walks this guy named Vladislav, who's this Russian-seeming canine relations specialist. And not unlike Caesar Milan, it's it's not about the dog. It's about what the dog is absorbing from the environment. Yeah, it's that was going to be my next question. It's you mentioned they have a daughter. And right. I suppose you could have easily, you know, run this play with them looking at what the daughter's been doing and the effect of their relationship on the daughter. Right. But you chose a simpler being. Mm -hmm. You chose the dog. Mm -hmm. Well, I, th I think it made it more interesting because it, it takes it because, you know, if it's just the daughter and not the dog, then you have a counselor and then you kind of know you're going to get okay, well, what's going on in this house? But w with a, an animal, you don't necessarily expect that 
the details of your relationship with your spouse are going to matter that much in relation to an animal. And yet what the play ends up saying, and a lot of it is, you know, is also comedic and it gets progressively deeper as it goes along, is the fact that there are issues uh, within personal relationships that absolutely can affect an animal every bit like it affects a child. And um, so a lot of the thrust of the play is Vladislav, the canine relations specialist, basically getting this information out of the couple. And of course, there's, you know, resistance and all this. It's not like they are willing, they're both mutually willing, the husband and wife mutually willing to do this at the top. I mean, it's, they have to kind of, especially the wife, Julianne, has to kind of be won over a little bit as to this guy, uh, Vadislav's practice, how he works. Looking at the dog as the, as the, the mirror of the relationship, you take this incredibly complex thing, this relationship between the, the couple, right. which is always complex and there's always layers. Right. And you filter it through an animal that has basically not so many layers of emotional response. Dogs are normally affectionate right. unless they've been mistreated or abused, right. in which case they turn to violence. Right. It's, it's a natural reflex. There's right. no other way for them to, to respond. Right. And the dog does this. The dog does start biting. And to have that as the barometer of the relationship instead of, let's say, going through the daughter, mm -hmm. which could be much more, much more complex, mm -hmm. um, seems to be an interesting choice. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm certainly of, of the thinking that, you know, animals, while they're not complex thinkers or don't have the capacity to be complex thinkers as many humans... They absorb. I mean, they just, they are, they have blood and veins and a heart and they absorb. So um, it's, it's very much, it's very valid to try and pinpoint why an animal is a certain way. And, and also, you know, it's not cut and dry with carrot either. Carrot was an abandoned animal. Um, you know, he is found in a, um, in a shelter. So there's obviously speculations uh, as Julianne points out, well, we don't know what he could have come from before we got before he got to us. You know, he could have been abused, um, and so there's that rationale as right, well. Right. Well, it, it doesn't have to be us at all. It could be where he came from, and and uh, absolutely. Are there canine re uh, relations specialists out there? I never looked up that title. It's something that I created. They may exist. Um, I I didn't want to use Dog Whisperer because. You, right, you right, see right. This guy, he became so famous, Caesar Milan, that you say dog whisperer, and if he's not Caesar Milan, people might get confused or something, <laughs> thinking he's the only one. There actually are many dog whisperers, but um, yeah, I haven't heard of any formally called canine relations specialist, but I like the title. I think it's funny. You are listening to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm George Sapio, and our guest today is Daniel Damiano. Who's having a couple of world premieres? Uh, one is Day of the Dog, which we have been talking about. Do you actually own a dog? No, I haven't had a dog since I was in school. I've had more recently had cats since I've been in New York. Do you like dogs? <laughs> I love dogs. I love all animals. Um, the Golden Year. You've got another uh, another world premiere coming up. You're a busy guy this year. Yeah, I, I tell you, you know, and and George, you know this. You know, you 
we send our plays out and to get one full length produced by a professional company is is saying something and to, i'm i just feel very very grateful that i can i can have two within three months of each other because it is it is a climb um to get to that but i i'm very appreciative but yes the golden year is going to premiere in june with the workshop theater company where i'm a member of uh they're based in uh, midtown um and yeah that's a play that actually has is a newer play and it's um set in long island a newly retired long island couple it's primarily a two-character play uh joe and gene brancato and basically they're newly retired and um they're basically looking forward to resting on their laurels a little bit and then eventually cashing out their money and uh seeing the world and um yeah, things get the american dream yes absolutely they work their whole lives and now it's okay well now this is what we do and this is what we've aspired to do and things get a little more complicated um i won't go into too much detail but no, no, no. Yeah. save the good stuff for the paying patrons there you go yeah when did you know you were a playwright well i've been writing plays since i was in junior high, but of course those were those were very bad plays. Um, <laughs> I think I felt I was I was a good playwright um, in my late twenties, which would equate to probably about fifteen years ago. Um, I, I think you you know once I I always kind of had a, a knack for an ear for dialogue, um, and basically you know a lot of it is just trial and error. You know I um, I I love storytelling through dialogue. I, I really, really do. That's what I respond to most when I was reading plays, as a, you know, when I was in junior high and getting interested in acting. Um, it just was very exciting to just read a play. I remember Neil Simon were like the first plays I read, and and those were because he writes in such specific rhythms with timing. It was a, re, it was very educational for me in terms of basic structure of a play, and of course, you know, you can go hog wild from there. How did you learn to spot those rhythms? I mean, it's, I'm not sure it would be immediately apparent to anybody who just picked up a play and started reading. For, for me, it was. I mean, Neil Simon, but I, I really just responded. I just saw in him the rhythms and, and a lot of really, really good dialogue exchanges, which was what kind of helped fuel me to read more plays and then through reading more plays, starting to write my own. And uh, as I said, by the time I was in my late 20s, I felt like I was really getting more in touch with my own personal voice and it wasn't about mimicking other voices it was really about okay now i'm living a life i'm absorbing things in my own life i'm developing perspective in my own life and i'm able to funnel that into a play and i think once you're able to do that it's why it's wonderful to be a writer because it's an ageless profession right. and it's all about you know the more we absorb as a person and then channeling that through our writing it's it's not about being a whiz kid at 21 years old at a juilliard and um you know having a nice little um uh, you know neil labutian type play that maybe uh that catches on and then um okay well then what else you got you know it's it's really about living your life observing life and um using your own life and your own perspective to um to, you know, infuse your work. So the best playwriting comes from depth of experience. The more you've traveled through life, the better chances you have of translating that to... Absolutely. You know, it, it is a cliche, and I don't necessarily respond to all the cliches, but I do believe 
there are certain cliches that do make sense. You know, they say apple a day keeps the doctor away, and there's truth to that. Write what you know. But yeah. that's, right. that's, that's limiting unto itself. It's not just writing what you know. It's also writing what you have a desire to learn about. And if you learn about it, and learn about it more than just researching, but learn about it in a way, like if you write... Like I wrote a play about a French executioner called the called Graphic Nature. It's set in 1913 France. Obviously, I've had no firsthand experience with operating a guillotine. I'm sure there's an app you, for it. There's got to be something on Google that'll teach me. But no, it was based on an actual guy, and I fictionalized it. Uh, made it about this guy uh, named uh, Edmond de Capitois is his name. Oh, I uh, love it. Yeah, love it. it's got a lot of dark humor, but it's gothic. It's also a romance. I think it's it's quite a lovely play, if I do say so myself. But anyway, I, I had found out about this particular character, and then I had researched enough about it. But it wasn't. It couldn't just be this play about you know capital punishment. It couldn't just be a play about a theme or oh how interesting this is. It had to be. It all my plays have to be are basically character studies. So it had to be about an individual and how I as Daniel Damiano personally feel. Now we're getting to an entire different area of playwriting, which I could go on for hours talking about, and that is the concept play or the character play. Because yeah. there, I mean, I, they, for, it always has to be character first. And if if it's character first, then you can get mileage with 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 the issues that you might want to put in there as well. Because if it's issue first, it's like it's like building a house on a on an unstable foundation. Eventually, it's just going to fall through, and it's going to be kind of hollow. And I see that all the time. It's it be you know, there's a lot of plays that get done because they are have a hot button issue, but they don't necessarily have the characters. And that really is what you as an audience are going to respond to. And it's what I as a writer respond to is I have to have an, an individual. And in this case, you know, a guy who operates a guillotine. Well, I mean, I got to really understand this guy. I mean, I really have to understand him and, and really humanize him to the point where people aren't just think he's just some linear uh, executioner, that he's someone that they actually have compassion for and that they couldn't fathom having compassion for just by reading a synopsis of the play so it's always character first for me how can you buy into a play emotionally unless you actually care about somebody who's on stage you you can't i mean you you really can't i mean you have to you have to have just carrot rich richness richness of character um because it's like being in the room with someone for an hour and a half two hours it's like well I want to be in. Uh, we're getting a little, a nice little sparrow. He's my, okay, he's my translator. Was, yeah. He's okay. my translator. He's actually translating everything I say outside to his, to his fellow pigeons and sparrows. No, it's, it, it's, it's really all about. Yeah, I mean, if you're in the room with someone for an hour and a half, I mean, they better be engaging. They better not just be talking about, um, you know, environmental issues without, without giving well, me a sense of how touch. they are as a person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise I'm like, well, why is this strange person in my house talking to me about environmental issues? It's, it is. It's like inviting a stranger into your house mm -hmm. to have a play that has really no character base, but it's just about issues. Do your plays change you? Yeah. Well, you know what they do? They give me what I think plays should, should give an audience, which is they kind of you know, life is, um, you know, I, I can be very scattered in my thinking and life is, is, has no sense of containment, just the living of our lives. You know, we wake up in the morning, we go outside, anything can happen. And in writing a play, there's something about um, condensing things and things that we maybe have not verbalized um, 
that all of a sudden we channel into a story or a character and it makes sense. And if you have an antagonist, you really have to write him in a way, unless, I mean, even if it's, you know, the most farcical, the most absurdist, you have to still write him about him in a way that's engaging beyond the surface. You still have to invest as much humanity in an antagonist as a protagonist. You you have to have you have to have that balance. I mean, listen, there's something to streetcar named desire. I mean, when you got Stanley Kowalski, who is you know bit of a thug, bit of a thug, and yet he's he's become this archetypal character, and and yet how could you get through that play uh, if you hate this guy? Right. There's got to be something about him that's engaging to you. There's got to be something about him that's he's pulling gotta, you. He's got to be real. He's got to be human. Otherwise. Right. You're going to skip over them, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to, but to get to get back to your point, yeah, I mean, yeah, my my plays do change me, but they also more more than that, they just really help my focus in terms of not just what I feel about an issue, but just what I feel about certain things about life, even if it's not a play that, and none of my plays really do have a simple answer, but they just help to contain a little bit and make more sense of it because. There's so much in this world that is senseless. <laughs> and that's true to a certain extent. And I think as artists, we, we want it to make sense of things. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it gives us an answer. It just means it's it's digestible. Well, sometimes it's enough just to ask the question. Yeah. Like Socrates. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just about asking a question. Absolutely. And it's not about having an answer. It's just about creating, right, creating an intriguing question and... I mean, life does not supply us with answers. Hence, we have art. Hence, we have politics. Hence, we have marriages, divorces, life as we know it. I mean, Absolutely. art should reflect the truth of life, which is sometimes there is no answer. Absolutely. What what art basically has to do at its best is just give give a feeling to an audience. An audience has to be... I mean, the best art is something that an audience really can have their own opinion about, and it may differ from the person that's sitting next to them. But as long as it's giving them something to think, and as long as it's sticking to them, right. I mean, it can't be, it can't be takeout. You know, I mean, even if it's a comedy, I, I just think it's interesting. I think we I, we talked briefly before taping about this essay that I'm right. working yeah, let's, on. Let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. yeah, there's this essay I'm working on for this upcoming essay uh, contest about, and it's just basically on various subjects and the theater in mine is revitalizing awareness why the theater must survive and basically the theme of it is how theater is struggling against the tide of the cyber age which you know understandably has has herded what maybe were theater goers away from the theater because everything is at home now well why go out right entertainment has become much simpler much cheaper you don't have to get dressed up yeah you yeah. Can, you can see an in, in a, you know something on the internet as quickly as order a pizza and do both and you know right. and and yeah. and then some and then there's that and then there's the deficient arts education that's continuing and for the for younger generations to even have an awareness of theater. So you have these two things working against, you know, growing audiences in the theater. And yet, you know, theater at its most basic, and it really is the, 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 the one form we have that connects us as a society. It's a, it's a reason for people to get together. It's a reason for people to see something and to have a discussion afterwards to ponder. And it's not to say that everything has to be depth probing tragedies or anything like that, but it just has to be something 
it does have to be something that warrants people's warrants people's time. It has to be something that there has to be a grain of truth in it, something they can recognize, right? And give them something that's that's they're going to mull over, something that'll stick with them. You know, I mean, out of all the forms of entertainment, it's one of the most laborious and you know time consuming to invest in. People people do. I mean, people do it for. No money and or little money or people do it for love or scale and it's but it's it's all a catharsis. I mean that's what it is. It's everyone that does theater. Most people that do theater uh, do it because it's it it's a deep love. It's a catharsis for them because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like doing something live. There's nothing like hearing the audience, not even laughing, but listening. The the power of hearing an audience hooked, right? The lean in and and an audience and a cast working off that is um, it's, it's infectious. And to be in an audience when something is working. It's just, um, it's wonderful. I mean, when I when I see something, you know, I can go a long stretch with seeing subpar theater, and then I'll see something that blows you away, and I'll Absolute, be tingling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, but and it's hard to explain to people that haven't been to theater. But it, there's nothing like it when you're in the room with other people and you're experiencing a live event at the same time, and it's giving you something to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider it actual magic. I consider it just something that 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 rises from the chemistry of the people on stage the script the audience it's doesn't happen all the time and it doesn't happen nearly as often as we think we want it to happen but right. when it does happen there's that almost no happen. there's almost no way to describe it absolutely i mean there there there's just nothing like it because people either you know either it's either from an identification that they have it's either going back to what we said before it's making sense of something for them that maybe didn't make sense before it's it's you know, when you see a play about families or something like that, it, it's it's somehow it's just making it, it's making sense, or it's just sticking with them, and it's giving them cause to think, and maybe it changes them in some way, and that's the best the best of it. You know, I, I totally agree with you. We're going to be running out of time here in a couple of minutes, and I do want to get to. Um... You're a playwright, you're, uh, you're you're an actor, which I haven't even had time to talk to you about, and I'd love okay. to, you know, next next time you're on sure, the show. Sure, um, sure. But you're also a poet. Yeah. And you've got um, you've got uh, a, a poem, a collection of poems, and for uh, the Pushcart Prize for finalist here. Yeah. Well, actually, I, ha- I had a few pump, uh, recent poems published in uh, Newtown Literary Journal, which it's it's. Uh, very new. It's uh, was in their inaugural edition, which came out in December. It's actually based out in Queens. It's founded by a guy named Tim Frederick, um, mainly seeking New York-based writers. I read about him in the Daily News and submitted some work. And um, they nominated uh, my poem, If the Pigeons Vanish from the Streets of New York City, for a Pushcart Prize. Basically, it's a, it's a prize for... It's a, price for small press publications and so the publications uh, select six things or however many things from their own publication and they submit it so right now it's a nominee and I don't even know when I'll find out if I've done the darn thing but that's still incredible I mean it's this seems to be the year for you well I mean from your lips to God's ears George (laughs) I don't know if I have that kind of connection can I actually mention just one thing about the current production at the workshop if I can yeah yeah please go ahead yeah there's um, this by the time this airs I think we'll still have one week left Um, lightning from heaven is currently running at the workshop theater this is a company that I'm a member actor and playwright of they're doing my play the golden year in June Uh, it's a company that's been quite good to me as an actor and playwright Um, and right now we're doing a play called lightning from heaven by Scott Sickles who's our artistic director 
It's actually based on the scandalous affair that Boris Pasternak, uh, author of Dr. Zhivago, had uh, with Olga Ivinskaya, I think. Um, and it's a large cast. They're all my buddies, really, really good actors, and it's running now. Um, so if you're in the city, um, it's workshoptheater.org, and it's running through March 9th. I just wanted to give a little plug. That's fantastic. How about a plug for yourself? What's your website? Uh, DanielDamiano.com. It's, um, spell my last Italian name. It's D-A-N-I-E-L-D-A-M as in Mary, I-A-N-O.com. Fantastic. And, and uh, I wish I could get out to St. Louis to see Day of the Dog. And um, who knows, I might even get down to New York to see the Golden Year in June. Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. We'll definitely have you back at some point because I know there's just going to be more stuff to talk about in the next couple of years. I think Um, I should just make you my agent. This optimism is infectious. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure you could afford the cut. (laughs) We'll see you all again next time on On Stage, Off Stage. Thanks for listening. Thanks, George.